Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who show wrapping up the month of March. I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And tonight we're going to be talking sophomore stories. Dave, how are you? I'm very good, Rob. Very busy at work. It's getting towards that time of year. I was actually up in your state of New South Wales on the weekend, Rob, although still about eight hours from Sydney and nowhere near you, but (laughs) I was in your state. You were. You squeaked over the border into a town where uh, my grandfather spent a lot of time growing up. Uh, Yes, and in fact, I was actually in the suburb of the town where you mentioned your grandfather was from, so complete coincidence, that one. Yeah, I do have a confession to make too. My grandfather also spent a bit of time growing up in Rutherglen, so he was kind of Victorian. Well, that's okay because <laughs> that is one of my absolute favourite wine regions, Rutherglen, so he would have done it right there. Yeah, he's, he certainly did. He, he got a, a good appreciation for wine for the rest of his life, I think, from growing <laughs> up there. <laughs> Anyway, we're not here to talk about my grandfather. We're here to talk, I guess, uh, sophomore stories later in the episode, Uh, some news, some mini topics, and we've got some great listener emails as well, Dave. We have, and I'm really looking forward to talking about these sophomore stories. It was your idea, Rob, and when you first put it to me, I thought it was a bit out of the box, but as I started to think about it, I really got engaged by it, and hopefully the listeners will find this engaging as well. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, shall we rip into some news, Dave? Uh, Yes, so a couple of quick ones that I've got here. The first of them is I just wanted to mention a piece of merchandise that's coming out that I would never have expected, and that is the release of Doctor Who stories on vinyl. I know, vinyl's made such a comeback these past five years especially. Vinyl has just taken on this uh, sort of nostalgic, chic value in terms of just wonderful pieces of ephemera. And as I look around my apartment now, Rob, I've got a couple of vinyl albums out on display. I've got a couple of my favourite Beatles albums. Mm. I've got a couple of One Direction albums that they put out on vinyl. Uh, I've got the soundtrack on vinyl of a film I really like called Sing Street. And they released that, the, the, the soundtrack of that movie on vinyl. I just thought, that's a wonderful, nice thing to have to remember this movie. And I don't own a record player. These are literally just pieces of merchandise to sort of have as nice things. Mm. And they're doing this with with Doctor Who now. Destiny of the Daleks has been, Galaxy 4 has been, but Daleks Master Plan is out, and they're doing this over a seven-record set. So you can imagine (laughs) you've got 13 episodes in there, including Mission to the Unknown. So you've got one episode literally per side of the record, and it's all coming out in what looks like a lovely little box, a lovely piece of art on the front. Recommended retail price, £99. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for something that realistically is just going to sit in the corner of your of, of your your house somewhere on display. And look, they look lovely, but it's just I, I don't know. It's just really really odd. I mean, you can get now Dalek's Master Plan as a um, audio file on your phone or a download. You can get it as a CD. Mm. Um, three of the episodes, of course, are on DVD. I love it. Like I love that they're doing this. I just don't know who it's aimed at. And I guess fans with, with a bit of extra cash that want something really nice. Yeah, I'm very conflicted on the whole vinyl thing. I'm I'm the age where I grew up, there was vinyl and there was cassettes, obviously. By about 85, 86, CDs were becoming a thing. I was like 10 years old, 11 years old. And these beautiful CDs, beautiful crystal clear quality, no bumps, no pops, no scratches, no nothing. 
it was just the future to me. And to me, the future is still digitally recorded CD, Dave. And I know <laughs> all these people that came before me and these generations after me now are like, oh, no, the warmth of the vinyl and the crackles and the pops, and it does look so nice. And, yes, I agree it looks nice when you hold up a big gatefold LP and maybe the vinyl is coloured or something. I know it looks good, but for me it's all about the convenience and the sound quality and i just can't get my head around vinyl at all let alone 100 100 pounds for dalek's master plan that's that just blows my mind i i confess if this was 20 25 pounds for doctor who vinyl i might be tempted to get one just as i say as a nice piece of ephemera as a nice piece of merchandise just to have around but 100 pounds mm. no uh, but, but but I love it. I love the I love that it exists. I really do. Oh yeah. Look, I I, I don't take away from the fact that it exists. It's, it's wonderful, and I know there's the particularly the generation after me, and maybe a little after you, Dave. They just love vinyl at the moment. They're nuts for it. Even cassettes are making a comeback. It's so weird. Cassettes, really? Yeah. Little indie bands are releasing albums on cassettes. I don't own a cassette player anymore. I couldn't even play their material. <laughs> I have got a cassette player in a cupboard somewhere, but. Nobody who has ever had to wind up a cassette manually after the uh, the tape spooled everywhere would ever want one again. <laughs> Quite right. Shall we move on? Please, what have you got for us, Rob? Uh, Dave, all, all Doctor Who fans will most will know that the Macra Terror is out. They've uh, animated it. They've shoved it out the door. And, you know, one thing I've noticed about this is in a lot of the interviews, the team that put it together are always making excuses about it. Like, oh, we only picked a four-parter because that's quicker to do. And, you know, we didn't want to do this four-parter because, you know, the costume changes were quite in-depth. And so we picked a four-parter and one that was really simple to do. And we didn't have time. And and it sounds very whiny, these interviews that the the, the makers are doing. I'm like, God, don't challenge yourselves, gents, you know. Don't take on a challenge by any means. So we have the Macra Terror because A, it was short and B, it was easy to do when, you know, there are other ones I'd love to see animated. Like, you know, I'd love to see the Massacre, for example. But I think that's one of the ones with a lot of costume changes. So this particular mob are like, oh, no, we can't do that. Can't animate all those different clothes. Yeah, look, it is an odd choice for story. It's not one of the ones that has a reputation as being a classic. It's not one with a classic villain or anything like that i quite like it in fact i'm, I'm a very big fan of the, of the macro terror and so i'm very curious to see this it's not out in australia for another two or three weeks i don't think and i'm I, i'm not excited enough to go and rush and pay money to import a uk copy that said though i actually haven't finished watching power of the daleks really I, I, I have put Power of the Daleks on i've watched some of it to go okay this is what they're doing and this is how it looks and that's really nice but I didn't feel compelled to go and watch the full thing. I'm actually more comfortable with the audio. And I suspect that's going to be the case with the Macra Terra. I'm going to be curious. I'm going to have a look at it, uh, see what it looks like. And, and maybe I will watch this one all the way through mm. because I'm slightly less familiar with the story than I am with Power of the Daleks. Right, yep. Uh, and, and plus it's also four parts, so it's probably going to go, go a little... Well, sorry, physically it is going to go a bit faster. <laughs> it's going to go 50 minutes faster. Huh? <laughs> So yeah, I'm I'm curious but not excited. Uh, I I get that some people like the recons better than the animation or the audio. Some people like the audio. Some people like the animation. I'm very much an audio's person, and it really kind of I guess just depends on how your your brain works and how you perceive these things. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll say two things. The first is when it comes to recons versus audio, I'm actually getting more into recons. I find that I can listen to the audio and because the still pictures on the screen only change every now and then, I find I can look around the room and sort of multitask while listening to the audio and then catching an image every now and then on the screen. And I find that quite a good way to do it. So that's one thing about recons. The second thing about Power of the Daleks, I watched it all the way through uh, the first time in black and white. I was very happy to do that. And then the, the, they said, oh, and of course, now we've colorized it because um, they literally did. They colorized the black and white version they made mm. uh, instead of just making it in color from the start and then uh, downgrading it to grayscale. And I thought, well, geez, I'll really enjoy that. I think it'll be much better in color. I've never watched it in color. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. And I assume that there's nothing on the disc in relation to the censored clips that were discovered a few years ago, or a couple of decades ago now, I guess. Uh, for Macro Terra? Yeah. I don't know. Like you, I, I've not gone and imported a copy. Um, certainly our friends in the US, uh, in the UK, are flashing them around at the moment, but mm. I, I don't have one. And I might even wait a few weeks or even months after it comes out here before I pick it up. Might drop in price a little. I'm really not that eager for it. It'll be lovely to have on the shelf at some stage. I mean, it's been missing for so long. It still is missing. Um, (laughs) So it really doesn't matter to me whether I watch it next week, next month, or even next year, to be honest. Yeah, I I do have to mention very quickly, I do remember very well back when a chap by the name of Rod Scott had worked out where all the censored clips were in the ABC archives, and he and um, our our friend of the podcast, Richard, had organised to go and get a copy of them all put on VHS tape and that they could take away from the archives. Yeah. And they brought it to a Doctor Who Club meeting and we watched these sort of 10, 12 minutes of clips, whatever they are. I remember getting to the ones from the Macro Terra and going, oh my God, that's a Macro, that's so cool. And then there was this moment of, it has flashing light bulb eyes. <laughs> oh <dear. laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, you, you sort of imagine the Macro, you know, as being something. And then, then you see the still photos, then you see a bit of fission, and then you see those flashing light bulb eyes, and you're like, oh, dear. <laughs> Nothing beats when it comes to these missing episodes when you were first... Well, when you were first, when you were only 10 years old and you would read about something and, you know, it had seemed so legendary and it was maybe best left there because when you go and actually see some of these things when they get discovered or whatever, it's like, ah, that's really ruined things a bit for me now. They're never quite going to live up to them. But look, I'm very fond of the Macro Terra. I think it's a really good story and, and I will purchase it and I will watch it. But from here on, I think I'm going to be a little bit more picky about which animations I buy if they do do more. Interesting. I'm doing it just for the sake of completeness because I've got everything else so it doesn't hurt every now and then to spend 15, 20 bucks, you know. Well, you say it's only every now and then 15, 20 bucks, but Rob, we're now getting on a regular basis great big wonderful Blu-ray box sets of the Doctor Who seasons. Lovely segue, Dave. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) So, of course, season 18 on Blu-ray is hitting the shops in the UK now. And again, we're seeing all over social media, our friends in the UK waving their copies. Australia is going to be another month and a half behind, which is a shame. I'm really looking forward to this season, Rob. I I really, really love season 18. It's one of my three or four favourite classic Doctor Who seasons. There's not a story in there I don't like on some level, and a number of them I love and adore. But interestingly... There was a little interview on Digital Spy with Christopher Hamilton Bidmead mm. about this box set where he, un- unlike him in many ways, he actually punctured a bit of the uh, the myth and the mythos 
around him in this season. Um, and if you've got a moment, Rob, I just want to read a couple of paragraphs to you. Sure. So this is a quote from uh, Christopher Hamilton. You didn't sit down and plan a season. You had to write the next script, he revealed. You got that done, and then you had to do the next script. The turnover was so enormous that there was none of that sort of forward planning. It would have been amazing, but we never had that. We never had the budget all the time. We were just kind of rushing it out. Any themes allegedly present during season 18 in particular can actually be credited to the fans, Bidmead insisted. The fans come along and they put structure in for you, he said. It's so exciting. That's wonderful. And I was a little disappointed to read that because I've always had this idea of season 18 as being this wonderful thing where Christopher <laughs> Bidmead comes in and he has this vision and this drive and, and he plans it and there are these themes all the way through it, you know, this theme of entropy and decay yeah. and, and this wonderful build-up to the end of Tom Baker's Doctor and all the little things, the, 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 the clock pointing at four minutes to midnight when Tom's got four episodes left in the end of Keeper of Truck and the introduction of the Master. And you, you go, what a wonderful master plan that was. And it seems a lot of it was, I won't say by accident, because I think those themes do subconsciously come through when you've got one person doing the script editing and doing the commissioning. But mm. but clearly it wasn't as much by design as perhaps we like to believe. Yes, as was it the Eccleston Doctor or the McGann Doctor said, humans always seeing patterns in things that aren't there. Yes. You know, I think that applies here. I think just all these things, just there was a, a, a confluence, you know. Uh, Tom Baker was old, he was run down, he was a bit sick at one stage. And, and there was the theme of entropy in the Goblets, and there was this and there was that. And, and fans, I think, he's quite right, do tie a lot of this together and think, oh my God, what a... What a wonderful thing. I mean, it takes you back to the, the Cartmel master plan when, you know, Cartmel himself will say, well, it wasn't really the Cartmel master plan, but, you know, it's very kind that people look at it that way after the fact. And indeed, that was an example that I was thinking of when I was planning this all this afternoon. People have said to Andrew Cartmel, well, why is it that the plot points and particularly the ending of Silver Nemesis and Remembrance of the Daleks are very similar? Is that like a plan? Was that a coincidence? Did you, did you notice? And Cartmel said a long time after, he said, I, I had no idea that they'd come out that way. It was clearly just my thought processes as a script editor were following along similar paths with the two different stories mm. without realising that I, I was doing that. And again, I could imagine Bidmead not coming in and saying, right, this is necessarily the overarching dynamic of the season. But when he's having his conversation with all the different authors, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I want to do. This is the tone I want to set. I guess those conversations were similar, and the result was that the stories ended up being thematically uh, related to each other. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But that's uh, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, but but as you say, Rob, I think confluence is the great word. You you put Tom Baker in there in that in that build up to his his knowing he's leaving this role. You put J and T in there with his production values and what he wanted to achieve over the top, and suddenly you've got this really effective convergence of. Uh, of themes and dynamics and it comes together i'm i'm really really excited about season 18 coming out i'm, I'm looking forward to just sitting down and watching this one again yeah i'm looking forward to it too you know some people run it down a bit you know oh tom's old and cranky and it's this and it's that and jnt's buggered things up and i think no it's i i just find it fascinating that final season i'm, mm. I'm looking forward to it very much absolutely and actually no i'll leave it there i suspect we'll talk about this in an episode or two's time when we've actually got our sets down here and can uh, can can have watched them all. 
I think so. Mine's on pre-order, that's for sure. Mine too. (laughs) Now, final piece of news. Last month, I said I'd report back on Big Chief. They had uh, put out a call for people who are interested in a 12-inch Jodie Whittaker figure to, uh, you know, put their names down. And they were looking to get 500 names in 40 days. Do you remember this, Dave? I do, yes. How did they go? They got 359. Ooh. Yeah, and uh, the writing was on the wall a week or so before the 40 days were up and they got out on the front foot and said, look, uh, if we get 350, we'll still make the figure, okay? Uh, And then they just eked over 350, got 359, and they said, okay, we're going to make it and we will make 500, so if you still want to pre-order, great. Otherwise, there'll be, you know, uh, 100-odd in their store um, after the fact. Uh, at a higher price too this was the whole thing for people putting their name down like yes I'm interested in this you were getting uh, the Jodie Whittaker figure with the signed plaque from Jodie if you're paying in full you got free international shipping which is about a 30-35 pound saving for us down here you were getting a cheaper price overall on the item and because we don't pay VAT it was even cheaper again so it made an awful lot of sense to get your name down on that list in the first 500 or 359 as it turned out I just think that's so I want to say worrying but I'll just say it's interesting because these guys have had no trouble selling runs of 500 a thousand two thousand of other 12 inch figures from Doctor Who this one though no deal 359 Dave yeah, I, I find this really interesting and a bit disappointing, I guess, but I'm still of the view, Rob, I don't think nostalgia is the whole of this story, but I don't think you can dismiss nostalgia as being a part of this story. Mm, that's fair. She is new. She's not only new, she's she's the incumbent. And I think even, even the day that a doctor leaves, they start to build up their nostalgia and you start to look back at the era and you, you kind of you know, allow the stories you didn't like to fade from your memory and the ones you did like you watch again. And and I think even for somebody's recent as Capaldi, there is some nostalgia. And as you go further back, there's obviously more. I think that Jodie's still the incumbent and there still is that sense of, well, she's going to be around for a bit and I'll, I'll see other merchandise and I'd see her on the, t- on the TV. Now, I don't think that accounts for the complete drop-off, but I think it's got to be a part of it. Yeah, I, I think it's a part of it, but I, I'm, I am just so surprised because it was such a good deal. The discounted price, the signed plaque, the free postage, like it ticked a lot of boxes. And I just, yeah, I can't shake the feeling if it was any other doctor, they would have done a lot better. I know they've got a Pertwee in the wings, for example, but then again, there's the nostalgia coming into play, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the people as well who are fans of Pertwee and indeed of Tom and many of the other classic doctors are now, well, I mean... In some cases, fans of Pertwee are not only at the peak of their earning power, they're, they're happily retired with their savings and the, the kids have moved out of home and a, a bit of money for a few nice bits of merchandise is a, not a difficult thing. Whereas if you're a 14-year-old fan of Jodie Whittaker who's really getting into Doctor Who at the moment, you probably don't have quite the same cash on hand as a 50-year-old who grew up watching John Pertwee. Mm. <laughs> that, that is very true too. It still could have done better though. I just, I just can't shake it, Dave. Well... Let's use that then and move on to the single mini topic we wanted to talk about this mm. month then, Rob. And this is something that I put to you, and you, you were very happy to engage in this as well when I suggested it. And that is some of the stuff that's been going on around the release of Captain Marvel in the cinemas in the last fortnight. And I was starting to see 
some things happening. So as you know, Rob, I'm a big fan of movies. I, I see over 50 movies a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a reader of comic books, so I've actually never read a superhero comic book, but I see most of the movies because they're big blockbuster movies. I've got to confess, I'd never heard of Captain Marvel until I saw the news that Brie Larson had been cast as Captain Marvel. I was like, oh, apparently there's a character called Captain Marvel and they're getting a movie. Cool, Brie Larson's good. I'll, I'll go see that. Yeah, and I had largely forgotten about the character too. I did know that she existed or he existed because Captain Marvel has been a bloke in the past as well. And it was when Katie Sackoff, Starbuck from the reimagined Battlestar Galactica was being thrown about as a possible Captain Marvel. I sort of sat up a few years ago and thought, oh, that might be quite good because I, I quite like Katie Sackoff. Oh, she would have she would have been good, yeah. But Brie Larson is great. I wouldn't replace her. But if in a parallel universe we got her, yeah, that would have been good. Yeah, so that's when I first sort of sat up about it in, in recent years. I'm not much of a superhero comics book reader. I do read some comic books, but they're not, generally not superhero ones. Yeah, so what started to go around the internet was a huge pushback to this idea of Captain Marvel leading the Marvel Cinematic Universe to this idea that the canon was suddenly starting to become, in inverted commas, politically correct and oh, they're now putting women out there just to appeal to the mass audience. And then there are comments about, oh, can't we just have one thing that's for blokes? You know, comic books are meant to be for blokes. Nonsense stuff. Mm. But this started to really build into campaigns. Uh, There was a big campaign to have all the people angry about this boycott Captain Marvel in its opening weekend in America and actually go and watch a different movie to prove a point. What we saw on Rotten Tomatoes was within the 24 hours after Captain Marvel came out in the cinema and, and Rod Tomatoes allowed just ordinary ordinary viewers to do their rankings, not the um, film critics, just ordinary users. Mm-hmm. In the 24 hours after it came out, they had more rankings from viewers than Black Panther got in its entire multi-month cinematic run. They did. And actually, to rewind a week or two before that, Uh, Rotten Tomatoes even had to change its policy they used to have this segment called uh, you know I want to see you know I want to see this movie and Captain Marvel had been downvoted to such a a ridiculous obviously inflated degree they actually took that ability off the site They, they changed their whole system on the site in terms of you know movies you want to see that aren't out yet yes and so after they had all of this happen 24 hours after Captain Marvel came out it had a rotten rating of 33%, which is just extraordinarily bad. And there's all this talk around the internet, all around Twitter, sort of going around to those Twitter circles and those YouTube comments and all this little sort of movie fan bubble about how it was terrible and it didn't work and Captain Marvel didn't work, etc. And then suddenly the figures came out for the weekend and it's the seventh biggest opening of any of the Marvel movies. It's Mm. rapidly heading towards half a billion dollars. It'll make probably close to, if not a billion dollars. It is the biggest opening for any comic book movie with a female lead. It's blown away Wonder Woman. Now, whether over the course of its whole cinematic life in the theatres, it passes Wonder Woman, uh, I don't know. But certainly in terms of opening weekends, it bested Wonder Woman, which was a big deal for DC. And, And it's gone on and got very good reviews and very good ratings it got an a cinema score which is where an actual audiences are tested and asked to give grades and an a cinema score is very very good for a movie that's what just ordinary audiences are saying about this so we once again had and i'm going to draw now rob and test you on this these parallels 
to some of the reaction to Jodie Whittaker, both her casting and her coming out, where you saw the same thing on Rotten Tomatoes, where fans would go and just vote down Jodie's episodes to try and prove a point. There's all this talk in Doctor Who circles on Twitter about Jodie and she's a woman and political correctness, yada, 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 yada. Yet the ratings... Okay, they declined over time, and, and, and you know you can talk about them, but still millions and millions of people in the UK and Australia and elsewhere tuned in to watch Jodie Whittaker, and I suspect basically enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, and look, Dave, I, I am not a fan of The Last Jedi. Let's throw Star Wars into the mix, too. <laughs> Let's really go for it here. I'm not a fan of The Last Jedi, and some of the regular YouTube content creators I would listen to for their thoughts on The Last Jedi would also comment negatively on Jodie. And I think, oh, I'm not on board with that. I like your Last Jedi comments, but I don't like your Jodie comments. And as Captain Marvel was coming out, these same guys were also down on Captain Marvel as well. And I thought, aha, I'm starting to see a pattern here, (laughs) you know? Whereas I'm not down with The Last Jedi for XYZ reasons, not least of all that it's the middle part of a trilogy and it doesn't really take what came before it or throw to what's coming after it. It's this weird thing in the middle that I just can't stand. Sure. I I disagree with you, but totally understand where you're coming from. Absolutely. Yeah, like that's one of my biggest beefs with the story. I just don't like the story at all. Yeah, yeah. These guys who slate the story also slate Jodie, also slate Captain Marvel. And I'll just say it, I think they have a real problem with women and they just let that permeate everything they say. And it's just ridiculous it's just it's cliched it's uh, you can almost tell what they're going to say on any given topic now and it makes me feel bad that i've i've listened to their last jedi comments even though their last jedi comments aren't along these lines of jody or or Mm. captain marvel stuff i think god do i think like these people no i don't think like these people what am i doing watching these channels (laughs) yeah and part of me as a doctor who fan is reassured that it's not just doctor who that's rotten or that you know, there isn't just this rotten element in Doctor Who fandom. It's clearly in many, many other fandoms, and it's clearly a bigger phenomenon than that. Yes. But I'm also kind of reassured by the fact that it just reinforces, and you know, as somebody who works in politics, we remind ourselves of this the whole time, Twitter is not the world, no. and YouTube is not the world. And this collection of just really just a few thousand individuals all across the Western world all just talking to each other and retweeting each other and everything. It actually means squat out there in the real world. That's right. And you saw that in the in the final week before Captain Marvel came out, these guys, some of them were making two, three videos a day saying, it's going to crash, it's going to do this, we're boycotting, you know, blah, 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 blah. Just delighted at, at what they thought was going to happen. But what they thought was going to happen was just what they were thinking was going to happen. It wasn't reality. It was it was just this little bubble, this echo chamber they'd created for themselves. And they were convinced by their own rhetoric. And it was scary to watch, actually. Yeah, and it just has no grasp of reality, no relationship with reality at all. And I think it's something that more and more as uh, people who are members of Doctor Who fandom, as we are, Rob, but I guess... I guess in the fact that we're doing a little, you know, our own little podcast here in Australia, we're in some ways active contributors to fandom, I guess, in, in our own small little way. We just need to remember that what we're seeing on social media is not representative and we shouldn't give it the credence that sometimes we think we should. 
No, but what I think it is creating, Dave, is this culture war or this gender war or, or whatever, where there are these guys who I think have real problems with women and they're, you know, making all these videos that are anti-Captain Marvel, anti-Jodie Whittaker, anti-this, anti-that. And on the other side, the flip side, people seem to think the antidote is to say, no, no, Jodie Whittaker is marvellous. She's the best Doctor we've ever had and Captain Marvel is the most amazing movie ever made. And they go overboard in the opposite direction to try and counterbalance these misogynist dudes. And I don't think it's an altogether, you know, truthful <laughs> representation either. This is why I like to say we're in the sensible centre, Dave, because we will say, oh, Jodie Whittaker's made a bad episode of Doctor Who there. We're not siding with the misogynist dudes by any means, but we're certainly not going to pretend that she's doing a great job because if she's put out a duff episode, it's a duff episode. I'm not going to try and balance what the misogynists are saying by lying about what I see. And that's part of the problem at the moment. The, the two sides are so polarized, it's just completely destroying any meaningful conversation or debate. Yeah, and, and look, I guess what we hope is that people just continue to engage, as so many of our friends and certainly our listeners do with us, just in, in good, honest, plain opinions. And that's that's good. But remembering that most of the great audience out there just doesn't care. They just want to be entertained. And that brings me to the final point I wanted to make, sort of mentioning these movies with, with Doctor Who. And I was reminded of a few months ago when uh, Aquaman came out. And, and Kevin Smith, a director and podcaster I've got a huge amount of time for and really enjoy listening to, mm. did a review with his, his co-host Mark Bernardin, who's a former movie critic with the LA Times and many other magazines and now now actually writes for television. But, but they did their review of Aquaman. And Kevin Smith was talking about how he was up on the set directing an episode of Supergirl. And it was during a break and a few of the crew were standing around and they said to him, oh, you know, mate, you're a big comic book movie fan. Um what do you think of Aquaman? And they all sort of discussed it and they all talked about the bits they liked and the bits they didn't like and what they thought worked and what didn't work and kind of pulled the movie apart again. But then each adult around the circle mentioned that they went and saw the movie with their son or their daughter or their niece or their nephew mm -hmm. and every one of those people, the kids, were blown away by the movie. They didn't think there were good bits and bad bits or they didn't pull it apart. They just thought this was a phenomenally great, fun movie. Yeah. And again... As reviewers and, and fans, we just need to remember that sometimes there are people out there, usually younger than us, that are just watching this material and going, wow, this is just great. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for full disclaimer, I don't even watch a lot of the comic book movies. I've not seen Captain Marvel, nor have I seen Wonder Woman. Haven't seen, uh, what were you saying, Aquaman. Uh, haven't seen that last Avengers film or Ant-Man. Or, you know, you could probably <laughs> rattle off about a dozen uh, superhero movies I haven't seen. The, the third Thor film, I haven't seen that. Oh, you got to see that one. That's a good one. Yeah, so I hear. Take a, take a white titty. Yes, uh, did yes. it I believe yeah um, I certainly hear about these movies and I have sort of an interest in them but I don't go out and actively watch them either at the cinema or even on home uh, DVD uh, a lot of the time so I sort of live through YouTube comments and reviews and things like this so uh, that's just a, another little disclaimer there that I, I don't even have a dog in the race you know I just sit back and just watch these debates going on and it's, it's fascinating it, it is fascinating at one level and depressing at another, but reassuring yeah. in another way as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. Time for the main topic, Rob. Yes, yes, that was a good discussion, but time for the main topic. And as we uh, said at the start of the show and as we said at the end of the last show, it's sophomore stories. We're going to look at the second story from each Doctor's Rain Dave. 
We are. So I'm approaching this in a couple of ways. Partly I'm looking at how do they work in that role of being the sophomore story for each Doctor, and partly just is it a good story that I enjoyed as well, and, and mixing that all up. Rob, are you taking a similar sort of approach? Yeah, we've split them down the middle, Dave, and I've jotted down comments on all of mine, and I'm looking forward to bouncing off whatever you have to say, because we never share our notes before shows. Uh, At the end, I'd certainly like to talk about, and this is is without notice, I'd like to talk about what we think are the most important of the episodes, which ones, you know, had the most importance to the show overall, or a particular era, or whatever. Absolutely, and... and so when we divided this up, I politely asked and you acquiesced if I could do all the even-numbered Doctors and you did all the odd-numbered Doctors and you were very relaxed about that. So perhaps we'll just dive in and that means that you start us off with the sophomore story for the first Doctor. Yeah, look, I was surprised you let me have the odds because that gave me the Hartnell one and the Pertwee one and, you know, the, and so on. And I thought, gosh, Dave, okay, no worries. So... Yeah, I'll lead off talking about the Daleks. Uh, what what can you say here? I mean, no bug-eyed monsters, said Sidney Newman, and yet five episodes into the series we had bug-eyed monsters. And it doesn't take a genius to say here that they made the show what it is and built a platform for it, so we still have the show here with us today. I think this is an extraordinarily important story and so much better um, than three out of the four episodes of the previous story. I mean, An Unearthly Child is a great episode, but all the Tribe of Gum episodes, they're a bit duff. This is just great 60s sci-fi. I think the Doctor's really firing, you know, it's only five episodes into the series, as I said, and it's really, really enjoyable stuff. It is. It's a very good story. It's one of my favourite Dalek stories. I I love it. I love the production values, the the way the city looks both inside and the big model shot outside and uh, and all the rest of it. But as a sophomore story, I think it actually follows on so well from An Unearthly Child because that story is all about the characters just meeting each other. They don't trust each other. The Doctor certainly doesn't trust Ian and Barbara, but as they go through their ordeals together, they start to respect each other. And the Daleks is all about taking that another step further and actually showing them have to rely on each other to get out of where they are. And Mm. again, that slow build-up of trust between them that then really sort of comes together in the next story. There there is this three-story arc before you get to Marco Polo. And it works really effectively on that. And I think the great thing about it being a seven-parter is that, okay, you can call some of it padding. And yes, I know that the Dalek movie took an hour out of this and nobody noticed that, you know, we lost any plot. (laughs) I get that. But the extra stuff we have in there, those moments between Ian and Barbara, those moments with Susan, those moments with the Doctor and Susan, add to those characters and we really start to learn who these people are, who the Doctor is. We see Susan. This is probably Susan's best story in some ways. What would you think if an unearthly child had gone straight into this and we just got rid of those three cavemen episodes? Look, I think it would still be really good. I think it still would have taken Doctor Who off in an effective way. I think it is more powerful for having seen the four major characters go through what they went through in the Cave of Skulls and the Forest of Fear before Mm -hmm. they get to the Daleks. It would work without it, but I think it works better because they've already had those character interactions initially and now we're seeing them come together as a crew very fair shall we move on we shall so the highlanders is the first of mine the second second doctor story mm-hmm. I, i'm a big fan of the highlanders i think it's a lovely little historical story and, and long time listeners will know how much i adore the historical stories but what's really interesting with this one 
as a sophomore story is that it gives the audience a very, very safe plot. This is a very basic, very straightforward Hartnell-style historical. The characters arrive in a recognisable part of history, something happens in the first 10 minutes, they get separated, and they've got to escape history at the end of it, and they go through that. It's very, very safe in that sense. It's very familiar. We also get basically the two plot strands led by the two ongoing companions. And Ben and this new character, Jamie, I don't know if he will go anywhere, they're paired <laughs> up, and they have one plot sort of going out on, on the boat, and you have Polly and Kirsty teamed up, and they do the other plot on land. And the Doctor sort of gets to flip between the two. Now, within this really safe, familiar story, the Doctor gets to be really different. He's doing silly accents. He's wearing funny costumes. He's beating up solicitors. He's, he's wearing women's clothing. LAUGHTER so so they give you this safe, familiar story and then put a really different Doctor into it. But just over, but the Doctor's just over the top of everything. And so I think it's a really clever way to do a sophomore for the first change in Doctor. I find it interesting because what you say, you know, it's a Hartnell-esque historical sort of romp. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But in the context of the Troughton era, it actually sticks out like dog's bollocks to me. Oh, absolutely. You know? it, it, it's, it's like this last bit of the Hartnell era before the Troughton era really kicks off. Yeah, so as, as a sophomore story, I'm, I'm kind of conflicted because I, I completely understand what you're saying, but I also think it kind of sticks out a lot. And, and it seems, you know, we just had this big Dalek story and we'll go on to Troughton, you know, being in, in the modern day and the swinging 60s and things like that and, you know, Tons of Cybermen stories are coming up and all sorts of stuff. This is really quirky and strange. And someone tuning in might be forgiven for thinking they'd gone back a couple of years in the show, perhaps. Absolutely. And if we were talking here the sixth or the fifth Doctor, that would be a real problem. I think because it is only the second and this is the first time we've had that change, that slightly longer bit of familiarity is probably a good thing. If you had a really different type of story and a really different type of Doctor in one hit in 1966, mm. that may not have been ideal. Okay, shall we move on? Uh, yes, now I've deliberately let you take the lead on this one because I think my views are quite well known to regular listeners. So over to you, Rob. <laughs> okay, for the Pertwee Doctor, we have Doctor Who and the Silurians to give its full title. And... I think here, Dave, you know, we've, we've had our introductory Pertwee story, that's fine, but I think this story really sets the tone for the Pertwee Doctor. He's not fighting the quote-unquote monsters, um, but he wants to help, he wants to work with them. And the ending is still so strong, I'm surprised he ever wants to talk to the Brigadier again. You know, maybe that's born of necessity with him being stranded on Earth, so he has to sort of keep in good with these guys. But I think this just does set the tone for this very moral uh, Doctor who who will go against the grain and often gets held up as an establishment figure, but I think he's he's anti-establishment. Like, he's got the posh voice and he loves a good Gorgonzola. But, <laughs> but I think he's quite anti-establishment with the way he, he goes against the Brigadier here and the Brigadier just wants to blow these Silurians up. Tell me I'm wrong. No, I think I think you are absolutely right. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm on record many times. This is my favourite Doctor Who story. I think the plot is fantastic. The twists are great. The characterisation by Hulk, both of the Silurians and of the humans, is excellent. It looks great. It looks epic. All of that aside, this is a fascinating story because it you can feel it putting the era together as it goes along. Bessie is introduced. We get a scientific government establishment where there's a crisis going on. 
We get baddies who maybe aren't as bad as we think they are, or different perspectives. We get a certain amount of moralizing that that lets liberalism that I've spoken about before all coming through. Mm. All of these things are built in. Uh, the, the doctor looking around for his sonic screwdriver. Yes, it was first mentioned a couple of times in the Trouton era, but this this thing of the, the, the doctor having a sonic screwdriver being really techy, all these bits of the Pertwee era just come together very naturally in this story to the point when he, he doesn't actually use the phrase reverse the polarity of the neutron flow, but he does do something to the neutron flow at the end to stop the nuclear <laughs> nuclear generator. It's building a classic era before our eyes in a great story. Yeah, and I think for that to all be happening in the sophomore story of this Doctor is just perfect. Yeah, I, I think this is uh, going to be not just one of the best. I don't, I don't just say that because it's my favourite story. I generally think as a sophomore, this is going to be one we'll look back on at the end and say we did the job really well. Yeah, agree. Uh, another that I think will be on that, that top end of that list is the Ark in Space. Now, you mentioned, Rob, a couple of moments ago about how much the Highlander sticks out as a sore thumb and the Hartnell era sort of continues a little bit too long. The Ark in Space is the reverse of that, by far. We have Robot, which is the familiar um, letting go of the Pertwee era tropes and putting the Doctor into it, but but the Brigadier's there, Sarah's there, you know, Headquarters is there. Mm. Uh, you know, you know it, it's not a big culture shock. The Ark in Space, though, that is like going from black and white to colour in some ways in terms of the culture shock. It looks different, it feels different, it's grim, it's nasty. I mean, you, you think about jumping from the Pertwee era to that scene where Noah is being turned into a Wirren. Mm. And and you think about what the production team intended, the scene that's been cut out with that, that brutal, harsh cut where Noah begs Vira to kill him. Yeah. I mean, imagine if that had been broadcast, you go from Robot with Professor Kettlewell, you know, you know, to, 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 Noah, to Noah as half a possessed alien begging his, his fiancée to kill him. Wow! Like, yeah. You could not have a bigger culture change, but they get away with it because Tom is fantastic, Liz Sladen is there, she's fantastic, but she carries the audience through. We're, we're learning to love Harry, it looks good. This is a story that twice... I've sat down when I've got home from work, thought I'm going to watch an episode of Doctor Who as I have dinner, put on the Ark in Space, and an hour and a half later gone, I just couldn't stop. Sorry, I just had to watch this whole thing. Yeah. And I think that's reflective of the times too. We're halfway through the 70s there, whereas, you know, um, I don't know, something like Silurians was being written in the late 60s. Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was first commissioned to put together in 1969, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Good one. I I have similar feelings about it too. I think it just does set the tone that this is a new doctor doing new things and I I quite like this as a as a sophomore story myself, yeah. And what it does do very effectively is it says to the audience, This is where the doctor's going now. This is what the fourth doctor is going to be like, this is what his story is going to be like, so get on board because we're going in a very different direction and they really do deliver on that. Which takes us to the fifth Doctor, my beloved Davo. We've got a soft spot alert coming up, Dave, because for to Doomsday, I've always had a soft spot for this story. I often say it's like a Hartnell story. They land on a mysterious ship. You've got an inquisitive Doctor and a large TARDIS team. And maybe it's no accident, because I think Terence Dudley would have been about 60-odd when he wrote this. Mm. He was very old school and maybe thinking of Doctor Who in a, in a much older sort of way. 
And so Davo's sophomore story sort of takes us back to a a kinder, gentler sort of Doctor Who, which maybe fits with his kinder, gentler Doctor, if I'm not drawing too much of a bow there. You know, it's certainly quite different to what you've seen in, say, Season 18 Tom, or or even actually all of Tom's era. It, it really does sort of feel like a throwback uh, in time. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing. It, it, it helps solidify that this is a new Doctor with a bigger team doing different things to me. You know, maybe the story falls a bit flat for people that don't like the big frog on the throne. I get that. But the story itself, I th- I kind of like as a sophomore story. I can't think of any other Davo story from that season I think I would have liked to have seen as a second story. I wouldn't have liked to have seen Earthshock, for example, as his second story, even though Earthshock is wonderful and it would have bumped Adric off much quicker. Uh, Rob! <laughs> but do you know what I mean? I, w- I would have hated Earthshock to have been his sophomore story. Yeah, that's interesting. Look, I, I agree with you on Earthshock. That wouldn't have been the right one. I have really mixed feelings here. I, I'm with you in terms of finding Four to Doomsday a very lovely, fun, enjoyable story. I've got a soft spot for it as well. I, I see its faults, but I, I get past them because it is, it is quite lovely. It, its problem, I think, does come from the fact that it was pushed into production to be the first story they made after JT allowed the intended first story, Zeta Minor, I think it was, to fall apart. Mm. And they had nothing to replace it until Castrovalva was written. And, and some of it doesn't really quite work in terms of setting up the era. I think Tegan's character just isn't quite as settled as she would become and, and, and doesn't quite work. Adric is phenomenally badly written here. This is probably his worst story. Uh, Nyssa is, well, I, I guess it's setting the scene that she's going to spend a lot of the Davison era just unconscious or locked up or sidelined. <laughs> so that sets her up well, I guess, but not in a satisfactory way. And, and Davo is good in the role, but... I think he's very clearly still feeling his way. Yeah. And do I like the story? Yes. Do I sit there and at the end of it go, I know where this year is going? I actually don't think I do, Rob. Okay. What if The Visitation had been his sophomore story? Would that have been a bit like The Highlanders, perhaps? And I was about to suggest that would actually be the one that I would put in. I think The Visitation would be a stronger one. The characters get, the companions get a bit more to do. It's a little bit more familiar Davison is a bit stronger in there. I, I, I think actually that would have been a, a better option. But but maybe I'm being a little bit harsh. I, I just don't think at the end of it I really know how this crew is going to work and, and how this era is going to work. And it really isn't that typical of anything to come. Okay. Shall we move on? Attack of the Cybermen. So mm. we, of course, mentioned this last episode when we had a look at season 22. And I said there that it was better than I remembered. This is interesting because although it's a sophomore story, it is the first story of a season. So it's also a season opener. And it has this role of basically picking up the pieces of, of the twin dilemma where the doctor <laughs> the doctor was just a prick. And, yep. and you know, well, look, we know all the stuff that happened in Twin Dilemma. It's got to pick up from there and reset it. And it actually doesn't do that bad a job. I actually quite like Colin in this you see a bit more of his doctor. You see the relationship with Perry is still antagonistic and I don't like it as much as I, I would like to, but it is a lot better than The Twin Dilemma. Yeah. It starts again with a bit of familiarity in terms of having the Cybermen and it gives us a very Colin Baker typical sort of story. So I, I think this isn't the best story on the list by far, 
but it's certainly not the worst, and it works, and it actually isn't a bad little mini reset for the Colin Baker Doctor, and I, I still think if you'd gone from Caves of Androzani to Attack of the Cybermen, how much better would Colin Zero have looked? Oh, massively so, and this is my point about it too, that it's in such an unusual, no, no, not unusual, unique position to be the sophomore story, but actually starting the his his first season. It's 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 a really weird situation. We don't have that in any of the other classic uh, eras of Doctor yeah, yeah, Who. Yeah, there's been this huge months and months and months long break between the first and the second story. Yeah, it's almost like. I almost feel like going to the next story to say that's his sophomore story because because this does just sort of reset things in, in, in that way. It's, it's quite strange. But, yeah, it is important in that sense. I mean, it's not the world's best story. I can still watch it and enjoy it. I, I enjoy it more than most people, I think, you know, and I think you do too based on what we said last episode. Mm, yes. But at the same time, I think it's more important that it just does reset the season. And although I think things had already got off to a bad start and maybe didn't get quite back onto the right foot, it does help in some ways that it's not, um, I don't know, Time Lash or something. Even though I like Time Lash. (laughs) Look, it does. I think it's one of the better options. I'm I'm going to explore the point you made there, Rob, and, and merge a couple of our ideas. You're right. Had we had Attack as the debut story, the premiere story for Colin Baker... And that would have been the, you know, the familiar monster, the dynamic, exciting start, throw the Doctor in, good opening. Then you get Vengeance on Varos as the sophomore. And that's a story where you don't have these familiar things. You get to let the Doctor sort of breathe a bit and expand a bit and actually show us what sort of character he is. And Vengeance on Varos, I think, would actually work really well as a sophomore story. Mm, agree with you there, for sure. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> which brings us to Sylve in Paradise Towers. And, oh, God, there's so much to say here. Dave, this is important first and foremost because coming after Time and the Rani, it really is the first Andrew Cartmel sort of sourced and, and, and scripted uh, episode. Although he'd worked on Time and the Rani with Pip and Jane Baker, that had kind of been foisted upon him, whereas this was more Cartmel coming into his own, working with writers more his own age, doing things he was more interested in. And I think that shows on the screen. I think it, it comes across as a much better story than Time and the Rani. It's great as a sophomore story for that reason, in that, you know, if the audience was a bit underwhelmed after those first four episodes, they can go, oh, well, this is much better. Um, at the same time, I do still feel conflicted about the story, you know, because my gut reaction is always, oh, I just wish they'd realised the tower block better and those cleaners and, oh, if that fella with the Hitler moustache didn't overact, you know, this could be great. Then again, I think, well, if it was done really realistically, like in, say, Dread, like the tower block in Dread, it wouldn't seem like Doctor Who. So I, I get conflicted with how it looks. And I get conflicted with the story and, and such. But as a sophomore story... I think it does sort of show us more of the Doctor and Mel acting more like themselves in the next couple of stories. And I think it rescues the season from the disastrous first story. Yeah, I'm with you more or less on this one. I I am quite fond of Paradise Towers. I think a lot of the elements actually work individually. They just don't work together. And if they'd had a Russell T Davies-style set of tone meetings around this one where everything was sort of put in sync with everything else, it would have been a better story. But I I like it. I think it's quite a clever script. Mm. I I have often equated the first five McCoys with the turning of the cruise ship. And I think Paradise Towers is a very important part of that. This isn't a reset in the way that something like 
arc in space was. This is a gentle turn from the Colin Baker era and where, where Doctor Who perhaps wasn't working as well as it should. And it takes a few stories to get there. By the time you get to Dragonfire, you're much more Cartmalesque. You've got a lot of that sort of dialogue and that tone. Then you hit Remembrance of the Daleks and suddenly the cruise ship's facing the way you want and it's going the direction you want. I like that idea, but could you imagine Colin, though, in this, in Paradise Towers? I can't. No, but also I don't think that the McCoy is quite as his best here as well. In this story, they've kind of just written the Doctor they think they're going to write for the Seventh Doctor. And there are parts of it where McCoy really grasps that and runs with it, and he's, he's phenomenally good. Some of his moments, the, the stuff with Pex, uh, the stuff with the caretakers, really good stuff. There's also stuff in here that doesn't quite work. And I think it takes the writers a while to really latch on to the McCoy Doctor. By the time you get to season 26, they're writing whole stories that mm. all pitch to McCoy's strengths as an actor. Yes. In this one, I still think it's a bit patchy. And he's, he's still finding the character and the writers are finding the character. I mean, it is a break from Colin, absolutely. They're not writing Colin. But I do think it takes a while to, to really get a grip of this whole era. Okay. So do you think it succeeds or fails as a sophomore story? Um, it succeeds, but not to the level of others. All right, let's move on. Now, Rob, at this point, I've got to say something. Okay. Sydney, we have a problem. <laughs> yes, Melbourne. Uh, so when we were putting this together, I went away and researched the different stories and I said, I'll do the even numbers. So I put more time into them. And I researched a story for the Eighth Doctor. And then you sent me the running order that you put together because it was your month to put together the running order. And you had on the list a different Eighth Doctor story. What would you call his sophomore story? I went with the dying days. Oh, in okay. You went... The literature route, okay. Yeah. and I'll tell you why. Because when I was in fandom in 1996, The New Adventures were the series. Yes. And, and so Lungbarrow was the last Sylvester McCoy story. It just was. And The Dying Days was the second McGann story. It, it just was. And I can go with this. Let's let's do Dying Days then. So, and, and and at the end of our episode, you'll find out another reason why I think this is the right choice because, well, you know, you know what I'm talking about, Robin. The listeners will find out soon. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, the Dying Days. So, for, for listeners who aren't aware, The Dying Days was the last Virgin uh, New Adventure novel before the rights reverted to the BBC and they started doing their versions. So, this was a, an, an end of the series. They got to do one book with Paul McGann as the Doctor, and. It was by Lance Parkin, and it really, I think, works so well as a sophomore story because after the unusual cultural nature, shall we say, of the telly movie, <laughs> he is able then as an author to put the Eighth Doctor back into a very familiar Doctor Who setting. We're back in London. It's an invasion with the Ice Warriors. The Brigadier is called out of retirement. Bernice Summerfield pops up. And so suddenly you've got that sort of idea of, okay, look, we know the Doctor had an adventure over there in that, that America place, and it was in San Francisco, and, <laughs> and, and, the, and the Master was different, and, and okay, it was a bit weird, and what, you know, what's, what, what's the temporal law? But I, look, okay, that's fine. We all love McGann, though. Whatever yes. you think of the telly movie, I think everyone loves McGann. And so they get it, and they, they put that sort of that dashing Byron-esque Doctor into a much more traditional Doctor Who story, and they, they show his charm. And they show his wit and mysteriousness and that, uh, that elfishness about him mm. really comes through on the page. And he gets to interact with the Brigadier. And I really, really like it. I'm very fond of that book. 
And I think it is an interesting choice as a sophomore to take take the familiar and sort of build the Doctor around that, rather than, I guess, trying to make a, a literary, literary sequel to the American telemovie. Yeah, that's very fair. And I, I think the only thing I'll add there is that it, it's just a great pointer too that the Eighth Doctor did sort of come out of the blocks after the telemovie uh, happened and then no more uh, happened on television at least as a very literary doctor people think of him as a big finish doctor now but dying days and then a ton of eighth doctor adventures for bbc books happened long before big finish came along uh so to me he's a very literary doctor as well so i kind of like that you did that yeah and i'll be interested to uh, hear feedback from the listeners particularly as to what they think of as being McGann's sophomore story. Mm. All right, which takes us to Eccleston, Doctor Number 9 and the End of the World. Uh, at the time, Dave, this episode really disappointed me, and I can't, looking back, I can't really put my finger on why, but it does sort of point to, on one hand, I thought this was a terrible sophomore story at the time, but now I think it's rather good. I think it's quite a spectacle, even with its 2005 special effects. I think the Doctor starts to show a lot of range. There's there's a lot of comedy there. There's there's even a sense of romance there, even though he doesn't seem like a very romantic Doctor. I think this starts to sketch out what the Eccleston Doctor will do, at least in this first series. Maybe not what he could have been if he'd done two or three or four series. But at least for that first series, I look back on it now and I think, oh yeah, I see all the blueprints that are being unrolled here and and held out in front of me and and you know you get that britney spears music on and it's quite funny and fun and oh i don't mind this at all now but at the time i didn't like it can i ask rob yeah did you see rose only when it was broadcast or did you see the leaked copy a couple of months early i had the option to see it and i did not see it okay so you just followed rose and a week later you had end of the world yes that's interesting because I did see the leaked copy. Um, what was it about two, two and a half months before the um, the series came out proper? About that. And so I had this huge gap between seeing Rose and seeing the end of the world, and I actually wasn't disappointed. I wasn't blown away by it, but I just thought as an adventure, it looked kind of cool. It was kind of quirky. It was safe, and I think this is a theme we're going to come back to over the next few stories. Mm-hmm. It was very safe. But what's interesting is this is the sophomore story where you introduce the Doctor. Because Rose is all about Rose. That's very true. Good point. And this is the one where you start to hear a little bit about the Doctor. Who is he? Where is he from? What's his background? It's only leaked out. There's only little hints. But it's interesting in that sense. It's a safe story. I think it's a fun story. I'm. It's not remotely my favourite. Um, and it was marketed really strangely. I think... The, the, the previews for it and, and the next time trailer for it was so different to what actually came out. That, that's something I remember very strongly, but it, it, it is a fun little story and it's it's a safe one. Having given us Rose and just given us all this information, there's a doctor and a TARDIS and he travels through time and space and Rose and Mickey, da, da, da. <laughs> and then it's just like, let's just have an adventure in the future. Let's show people some sci-fi, having been in contemporary London for Rose. Let, let's do the sci-fi weirdness stuff. Yeah. It's got Zoe Wanamaker, which again is a stamp by the show. Look at this. We, we get Zoe Wanamaker. We're getting guests. We're fair dinkum. Yeah. I'm going to be asking the question to myself over the next half an hour, is this the best sophomore story in New Who? I don't know. But but I think it could be a contender. Oh, well, let's go to our next one then. Well, I think this one isn't a contender. 
Okay. Um, so this is the 10th Doctor's sophomore story, New Earth. Now, I watched this yesterday for literally the first time in 13 years. Mm-hmm. And the second time ever. I remember being very annoyed by this when I saw it the first time. And again, this is um, a sophomore story for the Doctor, but it's the opener of a season. Because, of course, the opening story was The Christmas Invasion. Yes, that's right. So we had had that break again. Looking at it now, I actually can see many of the markers of Season 2, or Series 2, I should say, are here. The dynamic between the Doctor and Rose, for better or worse, and I Mm. I won't, won't go down that rabbit hole, but for better or worse... That dynamic is very present. A lot of the markers that are going to go here, the, the first mention of the Lonely God, for example, is very much here. It actually does a better job than I realised at the time of setting up where this new season is going to go. It is, again, incredibly safe. It is, again, incredibly straightforward, much like End of the World. There is a very odd choice in here, though, and, and it's less a case of than I remember it being, but there are significant parts here where David Tennant isn't playing the Doctor, he's playing Cassandra. Or, for the longer part, he isn't interacting with Rose. He's interacting with Cassandra in Rose's body. And that is a very odd choice for a sophomore story, I thought. It is. But on the flip side, I think this is the first time we go to an alien planet in New Who. I think back to Eccleston's first series, they're either on Earth or they're on space stations and things. Are they ever on an alien planet? I don't think so, no. No, I don't think so either. So it's like uh, the first Tenet story sort of takes, you know, immediate hold after the the Eccleston era, and it's just like the Eccleston era. You get to his sophomore story, though, and it's like the whole universe has opened up and we're suddenly on an alien planet. And these cat uh, nuns uh, are both a- an amazing concept and they look really good, too. The um, the makeup there is phenomenal. I think there's a lot of humour. Yes, there is the smugness with Rose and the Doctor, but that's going to be a theme through the whole series. So it's, it's, it's kind of a thing. It's not unique to it being a sophomore story. I think this sort of blows the Tenet era open and says, look, you thought season one was good. Look what we're doing this this series. This is amazing. Look at this. And I think it's good in that respect. So let me put the question to you then, Rob. If this had had Eccleston in it, and rather than having to be a Doctor's sophomore story, it was the opener of a sophomore season, and it was blowing mm. open the series, having but, but with the same Doctor, do you think that would work even better? <sighs> I think it would, but I'm biased because I just would have loved to have seen a second Eccleston series. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so I, I kind of think, oh, what if Eccleston was in it? Oh, yeah, that would, of course, it would be amazing. It would be ten times more amazing. But that's that's bias. Yeah, but but I, I guess that point that you made that yes, there was a certain amount of containment to the Eccleston first season, and perhaps this was intended to be the second season of, okay, we've shown you sort of this nice contained around the earth sort of thing. Now let's change it up a gear and go out to the universe. Maybe that would have been an even more evident change if it had been the same Doctor. Yeah, I think that could be quite right. Okay. New Earth is better than I remember, but I still think it's it's just a little bit too safe and just a little bit too naff for me, I'm afraid. (laughs) Okay. Which brings us on to Smithy, and Smithy's sophomore story is The Beast Below. Now, Dave, I probably have a reaction to this similar to what you have to New Earth, because I always found this episode a bit too, I don't know what the right word is, try hard. I don't knock what, what it's attempting to do, but it just felt so 
weird and rushed and it was like you know ideas 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 you know all over the place but where was the character where was the characterization i also wasn't too fond of the doctor being pulled up by the companion at the end of this and and that's something that really takes hold during the smith and coleman era where you know uh, he was always seen to be constantly getting pulled up by um clara about different things i i understand the idea i i get it the doctor's alien and you know the human needs to save him from himself sometimes you know i i get it i just don't like it and you know what to cap it all off i have read that moffat thinks that this is his worst story he says it's a mess so i think i'm in good company by slagging it off um not just as a sophomore story but just as a story in general i think after the 11th hour introduces smithy in a really great way I think his sophomore story is a real letdown. Look, I can't disagree with you. I'm, I'm probably a little bit softer in my criticism of it than you are, but, but what you're saying is, is, is all very fair and valid. Where I think this does get some positive points as a sophomore story, though, is there are some nice moments where Smith gets to be Smith. He gets to monologue. He gets to interact with younger people. He gets to interact with guest cast. He gets to make speeches there there is a lot here where smith gets to really be the 11th doctor and and you're right it's wrapped up in a a narrative that doesn't really quite work and so from that point of view from a narrative point of view it probably doesn't really set up or actually really doesn't set up the moffat era at all let's be honest Mm. but does it set up the 11th doctor quite well i I actually give it points for doing that okay that's fair i I just still dislike the episode so much i can't see past it to see almost see the doctor in it uh, to be honest, I, I think it's a stinker. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> um, I, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm not that strong on it, but, but fair enough. Mm. Into the Dalek, however, I Oof. actually think is okay as a story. I, it's not my favourite. It's not my least favourite. It, it's it's okay as a story. It's a good concept. There's some nice ideas. As a sophomore story, I think this is probably the worst on the list because the Doctor goes backwards in this one in my book. The Doctor in this one is a prick. He is unpleasant. He is callous. He he is he is more callous than Spock on Star Trek. He's he's nasty. He's unlikable. Mm. And yes, there were rough edges of the Capaldi Doctor, the Twelfth Doctor, in Deep Breath, and that's okay. It was a different direction. That's fine. You can explore those things as well across the season. But I remember a whole bunch of us sitting down at the pub the, the week after this one was shown and talking about it everyone just said i didn't like this i liked the story the story was cool but he was just an asshole i don't Mm. like this doctor and you can have the doctor be rough without being just just as callous as he is here and i i just think this is a real missed opportunity a real misstep this one and i'll be very interested this is another one where i'm really interested in hearing listener feedback as to whether i've got that wrong indeed rob do you think i've got that right or wrong I think you're, you're spot on. Everything you just said, I could say uh, again, so I'll, I'll try not to repeat it. Uh, look, there are parts of this that are just wonderful. Going into the Dalek, the effect of when they go into the Dalek looks amazing. Being in the Dalek is a cool idea. Yes. And the, and the things they encounter there. Yes. Um, some, some of the storyline wrapped around it is, is a bit ropey and such. The, the Dalek's change of personality and, and things, eh, I can but, but, but take again, it or leave it. But again, it. it's, it's that safeness that we're used to in, in, in second stories in the new season. If this was maybe episode five or six of the series, 
I, I think it would have been a bit more complex, but it, it, it is played very safe and straightforward. I agree, Rob. Yeah, it's it's just not an amazing story, but that's okay. Not not every story is amazing, but yes, the characterization of the Doctor and the way he's coming across. I've I've told the story on this podcast before. When I first saw it, it was making me laugh because I'm like, oh look, he's like Malcolm Tucker, isn't he horrible? Oh. This is hilarious. Oh, my God. They made the doctor say that? Wow. You know, but then when I rewatched it, I thought, no, that that's an absolutely stupid thing to be doing. I, I can't believe they're doing this, not in a funny way anymore, but in a, I, I really can't believe they're doing this. This is ruining the whole feel of the series. And finally, it was toned down. And by his third series, he's just wonderful as the doctor. But this story, God, it's painful to watch now because yeah. of him. I actually wish that Robot of Sherwood had been the sophomore story because I think they'd have a good balance of him being very alien, very different, uh, very, very narky, but never a bastard, never callous. And, and and I know some people like Robot of Sherwood, some people don't. I, I happen to be one who really likes it. Uh, and I wish that had been his sophomore story. And, and Into the Dalek maybe would have worked better a little bit further into the season. Uh, even then, I still, still think they would have had to have toned it down a bit. Oh, oh for sure, absolutely. All right, which brings us up to date with Jodie Whittaker. Her sophomore story was The Ghost Monument. Do you remember that one, Dave? I do remember that very fondly, in fact, Rob. Yeah, so that was our most recent sophomore story. And as I said only at the end of last year when we did all our reviews on that series, I think the idea is good and it's shot wonderfully, but there's stuff going on in there which just doesn't land for me and the journey to find the TARDIS doesn't feel very epic even though it should feel epic and then I'm probably going to take words out of your mouth here Dave at the end when the Doctor genuinely gives up not even after a lot of thought and effort but just throws the towel in really easily like ah oh well we're stuffed okay (laughs) it sent the wrong message about the Doctor in general and to do it in the sophomore story what are they thinking this is where you big the Doctor up set the tone for the rest of the series and it's like oh this Doctor's a quitter (laughs) this Doctor gets hit with you know just a tiny problem and goes oh well we're stuffed that's it I, I couldn't believe that so although it looked good and although the story wasn't too bad that characterization of the Doctor in her sophomore story, give me a break, Dave. That was horrible. It's really funny you say that because as you're saying that, all of my concerns and problems and anger at that come flooding back. But until you had, I just had these memories of this being this really quite lovely, fun, safe way to get to know <laughs> Jodie and, and the characters. I remember the lovely visuals. I remember the way they interacted. I remember the way that I, I, I started to change on Graham, going, you know, who is this guy and why is he in Doctor Who? This guy's kind of cool. I like this guy. And, and, the, and the rest of it, I actually have much fonder memories of it. You're right, though. That last bit of characterization was a big problem I had at the time. And, 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 and you're right to bring it up. But I, I do think as a safe intro to the characters, for the most part, it, it actually works. And I, I think that of the five sophomore stories in the new series... This is the only one that can really contend with End of the World for the title is possibly the best. Oh, that's saying something about the new series then, isn't it? Because I think I think that bit at the end just kills the story dead. I I, I just can't believe Chibnall wrote that. I, I can't believe that when faced with losing the TARDIS, the Doctor doesn't rail and rage and get an angry that she can't get her friends home. And instead it's like, yeah, oh well. But it, it is only three minutes of 43 minutes, though. I know, but it's... 
it is still the Doctor doing that on the screen and saying, this is my character. You've only seen me for, what, an hour the previous week and 40-odd minutes this week. You haven't seen much of me. This is what I do. And it's like, really? This is what she does? Ugh. Mm, okay, fair enough. Look, I, I, I don't disagree with you, and I certainly, as I say, remember feeling very angry about it at the time, but those those thoughts have softened again as I've you know, had, had a few months to think about them. I just mm. remember it very fondly. Okay. Well, that takes us through all 13, Dave. I want to pose the question I sort of posed at the start, and that's I want to talk about what we think is the most important of these episodes overall. We can then break it into the new Who and the and the classic era stuff. But overall, out of all of them, what do we think is the most important? <laughs> as a sophomore story, not as the best story, yeah. as a sophomore story. Look, I think that the runner-up is probably the Daleks because of the effect that it had on the whole series to come and, and the role it has and, and the work it does. But I think in terms of setting up a brilliant new direction for the series setting up a brilliant new Doctor, a new cast, a new dynamic, new values, production, etc., and doing it in such a brilliant way, you can't go past the arc in space. Interesting. That's really interesting. I thought you were going to say Silurians then. I thought okay. you were going to say, like, I thought you were going to say runner-up was the Daleks and, and winner was the Silurians, and I was going to say, well, I'm the complete reverse, because I think the most important sophomore story here is the Daleks, because it does have that influence across the whole series uh so it's 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 important as a sophomore story for the first doctor yes but it just resonates through everything that happens in each series ever again and then silurians as the runner-up because i think that that is a a profound story for the pertwee doctor and sets him up but it's only that one era that it's setting up so daleks for me with silurians as the runner-up and Ark in Space for you with Daleks as runner-up. Yeah, and look, Silurians, I think, deserve to be in the top three or four. I'm not going to argue with that. And I would very happily put the end of the world somewhere in that top three or four as well. Not because it's the greatest story. I think it's a very good story, but it's not great. But just because of the way it so effectively continues an experiment. I mean, it's hard to remember now just how nervous we all were in 2005 about how this new series of Doctor Who would go. Would it succeed? And, and the end of the world is a very important step in making that happen. And it is the story where we first start to really learn about the Eccleston Doctor, who who remains my favourite of the new series Doctors. I, I think that as a piece of sophomore television, the end of the world really should be very high on this list. Yeah, and look, I <laughs> snap, I can't disagree. Um, when I look at the competition, I look at New Earth, I think, well, it's better than New Earth. Um, it's absolutely better than Beast Below. It's better than Into the Dalek, and it's better than Ghost Monument. So there there it is. It's, it's, mm. it's a no-brainer. It, it is absolutely the best sophomore story of New Who. And, and a contender across the whole of the series as well. Uh, yeah, look, I'm, I'm not sure I would go that far. Oh, look, look, I'm not putting the same level as the Daleks in the Ark in space. And even the Silurians. But I, I think it, it is, you know, up in that top four. Yeah, it might come around four or five for me. Yeah, probably four. Yeah. Yeah, it's, pr- it's probably ahead of the um, the Highlanders and such. And Yeah, okay, that's fair. Yeah, top four. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are there any uh, aspects you wanted to look at before we move on to our mailbag this month? I think just reiterating a point that I've mentioned across the whole thing, that it is very interesting to see where they've use the sophomore story 
to, to set up a dynamic and to change the direction of the show much more than they can in the regen story. And, and, and I think that's why this was an interesting topic for you to pick, Rob. Everybody looks at the regen stories in terms of restarts, but in many of these cases, it's actually the sophomore story that tells you more about where this Doctor's going, where this series is going, particularly when you get into the age of the post-regenerative stress nonsense where you know, yeah. there are stories, regen stories where the Doctor spends half or two-thirds of it sort of wandering around in a daze. You really do need these sophomores to set it up. And that's why New Earth is so important. David Tennant is unconscious for all but about the last seven minutes of the Christmas invasion. Now, that works well as a piece of drama. I'm not, I'm not knocking that decision at all. But it makes that second story incredibly important to actually see who this character really is just going about their business. Yeah, these stories, the Doctor is in their gear, their, their costume at the start, they're ready to go. It's it's really the, um, out of the uh, regen story or the sophomore story, I think I prefer the sophomore stories, actually. Yeah, I actually think I'll agree with that as well. all righty uh we'll talk about next month's episode at the end of uh this particular episode i think for now dave though we've got two uh bits of mail we should rip through absolutely i believe you're doing the first one rob i am this is from ham-fisted bat vendor he says hello rob and dave longish time listener here and thought it was about time i dropped you both a line anyway just wanted to thank you both for regularly taking the time to put together your always informative and entertaining podcast well thank you very much yes thank you uh as for your next theme a great idea to focus on the second story of each doctor in fact you've also introduced me to a new word in sophomore and yes i had to look it up just now from my perspective i certainly have great affection for the silurians probably nostalgia wins out here as it's also one of my earliest doctor who memories however it also boasts an intriguing script strong performances great location filming and a wonderfully downbeat coda the latter was arguably quite unlike anything we'd seen until that point anyway for me it's also one of those welcome instances where the memory did in fact cheat see the ps below there was also a great deal to newly appreciate that was clearly lost on my younger self regards and keep up the great work from bv and the ps is as for the aberrant memories i still recall seeing the captured silurian breaking out of a cage in a domestic kitchen with his captors a husband and wife looking on in horror there's a great deal of smoke involved and the woman is screaming in panic my memory was clearly blending this with another scene or story completely Anyway, I remember feeling quite disappointed when I finally watched the episodes after an interval of several years and wasn't able to have my hazy memories confirmed. Ah, well, still a great serial. Well, thank you for writing in. Uh, that's that's a really lovely email, and look, I agree with how good the Silurians is. I wonder if the scene he's remembering then or misremembering is when the runaway Silurian confronts Squire and his wife in the barn. It could be. Yes. I wonder if yeah. that's the, the, the mixed memory. Interesting. It's the closest to it in that story, at least. Mm, mm. Yeah, okay. Well, good, to have a, good, to have a new, uh, good to have a new emailer. Thank you. It is. And our next listener has written in, this was quite fortuitous, wanted to write in on one of our earlier reviews from Series 11, but it does tie into tonight's theme, Dave. Uh, yes, we have an email here from William, or Bill McCann, who is writing about our review of Ghost Monument, so that is actually very fortuitous timing. Mm-hmm. Hi again, Rob and Dave. 
Three minutes in, you were discussing the opening credits of Series 11, specifically the background graphics, when Rob noticed what I noticed, and that was how one side of the vortex was a mirror image of the other. I too am not a fan of the look, because it reminds me of peering through a kaleidoscope. I can't imagine there's much precise symmetry in space, so that kind of takes me out of the moment at the start of each episode. It just comes across as too mechanical. Something a bit less symmetrical would be cool. Hmm. 31 minutes in, you both commented about that rotating crystal scale model police box that's part (laughs) of the new TARDIS console. That never came back, did it, Rob? No, we never saw it again, thankfully. (laughs) Uh, Bill goes on. Honestly, I didn't see the point of it. I was reminded of a line spoken about a deadly disco ball, a pointless embellishment, as Icona put it to the Seventh Doctor during Time and the Rani, while in the centre of leisure. Weeks after seeing the Ghost Monument, I heard another Whovian speculate that the Crystal TARDIS could be an in-flight indicator which spins when the TARDIS is in motion, and that it is shaped like a police box to indicate what the outer shell of the TARDIS looks like to its inhabitants. I'll buy that. And given that the chameleon circuit has been on the fritz since forever, the BBC won't have to buy another crystal model, will they? <laughs> or just not show it again. Yeah, I think we speculated about that as well eventually. And yeah, it, it, it just didn't come back. It was odd. I, I think so. I think it was a chameleon circuit type thing, yeah. Yeah, right. 35 minutes in at the sports desk, Rob's play of the week was the Doctor touching the TARDIS just after it materialises on Planet Desolation. Rob goes on to question whether it was made of wood or faux wood, remarking about how that seemed weird, commenting and questioning whether police boxes were made of concrete in real life. According to the linked article, and there's a link here that we'll um, mention when we send this out, Mm. according to the linked article, some police boxes were made of wood, some of concrete and others of unspecified various materials. The natural grain of real wood boards when used to build forms for concrete can leave an imprint on the surface of the concrete. Once stained or painted, wood-grained concrete takes on the appearance of painted wood. So there you go. Wow. Catch you later, William Bill McCann III. Some interesting stuff there. Some interesting stuff. So I guess that makes sense. If you're using like a wooden frame and pouring the concrete in or using it to shape the concrete, then you'll get an imprint of wood, I guess. That, that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, very, very good stuff. I, I was quite interested to hear that. And also to think back to that uh, second Series 11 review, because obviously we did every episode each week, Dave. I, I lost track of them after a while. It's interesting to remember what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, yeah, thank you again for writing in. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if you're sitting out there listening to us now and you'd like to write in, uh, hello at the dwshow.net is the, the best way to write us an email at least or uh, reach us on Twitter or Facebook or something like that. So, Rob, what have we got for next month? Well, Dave, this comes as a suggestion from friend of the show, Mark, from uh, the uh, 42 to Doomsday podcast, occasional podcast, uh, that comes out. And Mark was kind of interested in tonight's topic and said, well, well, hey, when are you doing uh, the penultimate episodes uh, episode? And I thought to myself, hey, that's not a bad idea. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> and so I sort of ran it past you. And I think that's what we're going to do, isn't it, Dave? Yeah, it is, absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, that's why I thought it was actually worth saving Night of the Doctor for the penultimate Eighth Doctor story. So we'll cover that next month. Very good. Very clever. And uh, I'm going to ask Rob right now, can we swap and can I do the Odd Doctors as the lead for next month? Sure, why not? I'm not even thinking of what the episodes <laughs> are. 
Oh, 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 I just thought of a few. Yeah, yeah, why not? Of course you can. Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll both have comments on all of them, but, um, you know, I'll, I'll take the lead on the odds and you can have the evens this time. That'll be a lot of fun. As I said about tonight's episode, I don't think you'll find another podcast, listeners, and, and I challenge you to find one, where they discuss the 13 episodes we've discussed tonight in one podcast, and I'm sure it'll be the same when we do penultimate episodes. Well, I mean, what have we got? Smugglers, Space Pirates, Keeper of Traken, um, a couple of specials. And just, just for the information of listeners, we did agree offline earlier that in the new series, we would be treating two-part stories as a story. Yeah, I think so, that's the only yeah, fair way. Yeah, so the penultimate for the 10th Doctor, for example, will be The Waters of Mars, not um, Out of Time Part 1. Yeah. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that. So, yeah, look, do tweet us and email us your feedback on what we've talked about today and the uh, ideas you might have for what we might talk about next month. Yeah, please do. Please do. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. But until then, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. And we'll see you next month. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights for the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.